Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so that you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. I'm your host, Patrick Beeman. Welcome back to the Inside the Boards podcast. This is part two of our Ethics for the Boards in the Study Smarter series. Um, Just a quick review. Last time we covered essentially four basic concepts you need to know for uh, boards-related medical ethics questions. Those were the four principles, the core ethical principles of autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice, informed consent issues, advanced directives, and confidentiality. Today, again, thanks to Conrad Fisher, author of Master the Boards, and his team at MedQuest, see medquestreviews.com. We're going to look a little more particularly into each of these four areas I just mentioned by using some of the questions from their step two level question bank. And just a reminder, For the ethics-related portion of the boards, whether you're taking Comlex Level 1, USMLE Step 2 or 3, or one of your shelf exams, a lot of these principles don't change all that much, in fact, hardly at all, so that what is applicable to one step is essentially applicable to any of the others. So just in quick review, prior to diving into some of these questions and vignettes, the four basic principles that you need to be aware of are autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. Autonomy is the idea that it is the duty of the physician to respect the patient as an individual, that is to maximize their ability to make free choices, as well as to respect their preferences, in agreeing to a treatment or declining it. Beneficence is the idea that the physician has a duty to act for the patient's good, to do what is good for the patient. Non-maleficence, or the principle of doing no harm, is sometimes called the first principle of medicine. And the idea within medical ethics traces all the way back to the Hippocratic group of physicians. Non-maleficence, or first doing no harm, is part and parcel to what makes up what it means to be a doctor. That is, anything done to a patient must not be injurious to them. It goes against the nature of medicine. Now, obviously, inflicting pain occurs all the time in the course of surgery or even in administering certain drugs, which can lead to side effects that are unwelcome. But the benefits proposed by by the physician must satisfy non-maleficence by primarily not causing harm to the patient. Justice, the fourth of the core ethical principles, means that patients should be treated fairly, or put another way, equal persons should be treated equally. We reviewed last time that each of these principles may conflict and often Often, the clinical vignettes you will encounter on the boards center around some prima facie conflict between one or more of these core principles. We'll look at some questions that illustrate these and how the boards deal with the principles later. We also discussed informed consent. Informed consent is a process that involves disclosing the appropriate information, 
and that information is the risks, benefits, alternatives, and indications, as well as the nature of the treatment, essentially providing a rationale and the likely outcome from agreeing to such a treatment to a patient who has the ability to understand what is being said, has the ability to make a choice one way or the other on their own or via a surrogate decision maker, and they must do so freely. There's voluntariety written into the requirements for informed consent, if you will. Mainly, the patient should be free from manipulation or coercion into receiving the proposed treatment. So, four elements of informed consent, disclosure, understanding, capacity, and voluntariety. We'll look at questions that consider the exceptions to informed consent, as this is, it seems, how the boards very much like to test this material, as well as related topics, which I think are best understood within the context of informed consent, namely decision-making capacity and surrogate decision-making. Next, we're going to look at some questions related to advanced directives, which was the third category of questions I argued were essential to doing well on board exam related ethics scenarios. The two main advanced directives that we'll look at will be the living will, the written advanced directive, and the the durable healthcare power of attorney, which is the designation of one person by the patient to make healthcare decisions for them in the event that they are unable to do so on their own. Finally, the fourth category we discussed last time was confidentiality. Confidentiality is one of those things that makes the whole physician-patient relationship work. If one were afraid that their doctor was not bound by the fiduciary responsibility and obligation to keep matters discussed in the privacy of the clinic private, there'd be a lot more potential for patients to to refrain from being honest with their physicians. Confidentiality is important within medicine because it serves the autonomy of the patient. It respects them as individual persons able to make their own choices. We will look at some exceptions to confidentiality because Like with questions of informed consent, it seems the boards like to test the exceptions. So without further delay, we'll dive right in. First, let's look at some questions related to informed consent. From the MedQuest USMLE Step 2 QBank, the vignette is, A 28-year-old man presents to the emergency room with testicular torsion. He is in extreme pain. Emergency surgery is scheduled, but the urologist will be unable to see the patient for several hours. The urologist asks that the patient not be given any pain medication so that, quote, consent can be obtained, end quote. The question is, are the surgeon's concerns about informed consent valid? The answer choices are A, yes, the surgeon has to obtain informed consent from the patient before surgery and pain medication invalidates consent. B, informed consent is not required in this case. C, an ethics consultation is needed in cases like this. D, no, pain medication does not preclude obtaining consent. Or E, yes, because hospital policy requires informed consent from persons who have not received pain medications. All right, so the question is, are the surgeon's concerns about informed consent valid? There's a patient in the ER with testicular torsion who needs emergency surgery, but the physician will not be in for a couple hours and requests that pain meds not be given so that the consent can be obtained. So is the surgeon right or wrong? And the answer is D, no. 
pain medication does not preclude obtaining consent. So let's analyze this question vignette with respect to what we discussed regarding the process of informed consent. What is needed? Disclosure. So let's say this 28-year-old man is going to have a conversation with the urologist. Is the urologist going to be able to disclose the appropriate information to the patient? That is, the risks related to surgery to relieve the torsion. So the risks of anesthesia, bleeding, pain, infection, the particular risks of failure to correct the problem, and even loss of the affected testicle. It would seem that yes, this information could be disclosed to the patient. Now we have to ask, will the patient be able to understand the second component of informed consent? will the patient have the ability to comprehend what's going on? So if he is administered pain medication, will he be able to understand the risks, benefits, side effects, indications, alternatives, and the nature of the treatment that the surgeon discusses with him? And I would say, yes, this is the case. Think about the times that you yourself have had maybe a beer or two or been recovering from dental surgery and required an opiate for pain relief. In those instances, I would say most of us would be able to say, no, I'd still be able to understand the details of of some proposal or some course of action that, that's explained to me, right? So the important point is this. Specific medications do not invalidate the process of informed consent. A patient may still have the ability to understand what is being told to him or her. And that would be assessed, of course, by having the patient repeat it back, noting that the patient is alert and awake, and in assessing whether or not the patient has reasoned through and made his or her own decision, that is, has capacity. The third component, capacity, does taking a medication, and granted, all of this presumes that the medication at least has the potential to affect one's mentation. For instance, taking an NSAID for knee pain would not invalidate the informed consent obtained during a clinic visit for a patient whose physician was discussing the risk benefits, etc., of a hysterectomy. Now, on the other hand, if the patient was given a great amount of opiate pain medications and became somnolent, was not awake and alert, it would be likely that the patient wouldn't have the ability to understand the material presented or the ability to reason through and make his or her decision regarding the proposed treatment measure. In that case, you would expect the vignette to describe the patient as unarousable or intoxicated or somnolent. However, the administration of pain medication alone, where a patient still is able to understand the proposed treatment measure and its related risk benefits, side effects, etc., and is able to choose, that is, has the capacity to reason through the information and make a choice, the administration of pain meds does not invalidate informed consent. The last component after disclosure, understanding, and capacity is voluntariety or voluntariness. Is the patient free from coercion and manipulation? 
And this one may seem a little tricky because of the inequity between the doctor's knowledge and the patient's ability to understand as somebody who doesn't have medical training, it often seems from an outsider's view that every patient is almost coerced into whatever surgical treatment proposal is offered, even when discussed very thoroughly and objectively by the physician. And I think what's important to understand is that there's going to be a presumption of voluntariety so long as the patient meets the criteria of having the ability to understand the material presented and shows the capacity to make a choice after reasoning through the options. On the boards, voluntariety is most likely to be inhibited by family members pressuring a patient to receive a treatment he or she does not want which will be clear in a vignette. So in summary, for this case, the urologist has a misconception that informed consent is invalidated by specific medications. Rather, it is the process, as described before, which sets out the requirements for informed consent and which specific medications do not necessarily invalidate. All right, moving on to another question from the MedQuest USMLE Step 2 QBank. A three-year-old child is brought to your clinic with fever, stiff neck, and pain in his head. Bright lights bother his eyes. When you discuss the need for lumbar puncture and antibiotic treatment, the parents decline, saying, We'd prefer to take him home and have our minister pray over him. What is the next best step in management? A. Comply with the parent's request to take the child home. B. The physician has no duty to provide treatment to the child when the parents refuse. C. Treat the child after explaining risks, as this is a life-threatening condition. D. The physician should call the parent's religious leader and have him come to the hospital before providing standard medical therapy. So, in this case, you have a three-year-old child who has what sounds like meningitis, for which the standard management is going to include a lumbar puncture, searching for a specific organism, and antibiotics to cover bacterial causes of meningitis. Meningitis especially in a pediatric population, can be life-threatening, and the physician proposes the appropriate standard medical treatment, but the parents decline. How should a physician handle that situation? The answer is C, treat the child after explaining risks, since this is a life-threatening condition. This particular case brings up some good points, namely that there are limitations on what parents can refuse in their child's care. Parents can decline routine care, think of immunizations or antibiotics that would perhaps shorten a non-life-threatening illness, but parents can't refuse life-saving care for their children. This would be analogous to child abuse in the state's eyes. Moving on to another question. A seven-year-old boy has just had his third ear infection in a six-month period. You have recommended myringostomy tubes. The parents have concerns about the recommended treatment and would prefer to wait and see if their son gets better with time. Your next step in management would be A. Refer to Ethics Committee B. Seek court support to start the patient on medications C. Use antihistamines as an alternative D. Comply with the parent's wishes or E, seek legal advice from the hospital attorney? And the answer is 
D, comply with parents' wishes. So contrary to the prior question, although meringostomy tubes in recurrent otitis media may be an indicated treatment, because recurrent otitis media is not life-threatening, you should comply with the parents' wishes, even though it may seem best if the patient does not get the meringostomy tubes, there is not likely to be a definite deleterious outcome to the boy's health or a loss of his life. And therefore, complying with the parent's wishes is the next best step in management. All right, All right let's, let's move, move on, on to, to discussing this. some questions related to advanced directives. A lot of questions within ethics, and especially with respect to advanced directives, come down to issues of communication, how to make it clear, how to ensure that the patient understands, how to resolve conflicts of communication. So let's look at a question. A 99-year-old man is transferred from his nursing home to the hospital because of an altered mental status. The patient will require endotracheal intubation in order to protect his airway. The patient is transferred with a living will that states, quote, no life-saving measures. A family member wants you to, quote, do everything. The most appropriate management at this time is to A, transfer the patient back to the nursing home, B, intubate the patient and admit to the intensive care unit, C, call a family meeting and discuss the patient's care, D, obtain a consult from the ethics committee, or E, comfort measures only. And the answer is C, call a family meeting to discuss the patient's care. So in this case, you have a 99-year-old patient transferred from a nursing home with altered mental status and impending airway collapse and medically will require intubation in order to protect his airway. His living will states that no life-saving measures are to be implemented, but a family member wants you to do everything. So this case illustrates an important point regarding advanced directives. A living will is a written document, and it is aimed at addressing a patient's wishes regarding specific treatment measures in the event of an inability to make decisions regarding his or her own treatment. Now, the problem comes into being when general terms or sweeping statements are used, namely no life-saving measures, and illustrates the problem with written advance directives, namely living wills. More specific terminology could help clarify this, such as instructions for DNR, do not resuscitate, or specifically do not intubate. But what is this question really asking? It's the most appropriate management at this time is to call a family meeting to discuss the patient's care. A lot of times when there's family conflict, one family member says do this, another family member says do that, and the patient is unable to himself make the decision or make the decision clear because of incapacity, unconsciousness, or otherwise, the next step in management is to do the thing that is most likely to clarify the breakdown in communication. So if the living will says no life-saving measures, and a family member says to do everything to discuss the specifics. Now, the specifics would be things like a living will that said no intubation, no blood transfusions, no antibiotics, no mechanical ventilation. If the family member proposed do CPR, give antibiotics, or intubate the patient, this would be specific as well. However, the problem is do everything could mean anything from dialysis and organ transplantation, or it could mean put him on a ventilator. Note that this question is not so much asking 
what the right thing to do is, but what the most appropriate management is to resolve this conflict in communication. If the patient's living will clearly stated specifically no CPR, no antibiotics, no intubation, no blood transfusion, no mechanical ventilation, no artificial nutrition, then complying with the living will would be the appropriate response for the physician. However, this question is really asking how to handle difficult ethical situations in general. And in general, it is best to clarify ambiguities, however that is best achieved. Keep in mind that on the boards, the questions may seem like they're tricking you. But again, in order to be a test that's amenable to multiple choice format, like the board exams are, the situations have to be black and white. 95% of the time, you're not going to have to worry about the very, very difficult ethical scenarios that come up in the course of clinical practice. Moving on. A 33-year-old man with AIDS is brought by ambulance to the hospital after collapsing on the street. Paramedics resuscitated and intubated the patient for ventilatory support. His partner produces a copy of the patient's living will indicating the patient wishes no life support and that his designee is to make all medical decisions if he becomes incapacitated. The patient's previous hospital record contains a copy of the same living will. Which of the following is the best course of action? A. Contact the hospital's attorney. B. Provide sedation and pain medication and extubate the patient. C. Maintain the patient on the ventilator. D. Contact the patient's parents. Or E. Base the decision on EEG and head CT. The answer is B. Provide sedation and pain medication and extubate the patient. So in this case, you have a man who becomes incapacitated and is intubated in the field. In that scenario, it's unlikely the paramedics had access to the patient's advanced directive, and notably, the patient's living will, his written advanced directive, designates his partner to make all decisions if he becomes incapacitated, and notes that he wishes no life support. Because the patient's wishes are known, specific, and clear, and the vignette describes no conflict of communication or conflict between potential decision makers, the next step is to provide the sedation and pain medication and extubate the patient. Now note, this question brings up a good general example of how board exam question writers will often frame answer choices. The interrogatory asks, which of the following is the best course of action? The correct answer is to provide sedation and pain medication and extubate the patient. But the way the answer choice is written includes provide sedation and pain medication and extubate the patient. This seems like a no-brainer, but just make sure that when you approach questions on the board exams, you read the entirety of the selection, because the real meat of the answer here is at the end of this answer choice, not at the beginning. Let's look at a few examples of questions regarding confidentiality. A 42-year-old female has cryptococcal meningitis. She eventually agrees to be tested for HIV. The test comes back positive. Should her condition be reported to the Department of Public Health? A. Reporting depends on the patient's consent. B. Cryptococcus is reportable, but not HIV. C. Yes, all HIV-positive persons and AIDS are reportable illnesses. D. Reporting is at the discretion of the physician. And the answer is C. Yes, all HIV-positive persons and AIDS patients are reportable. 
So confidentiality is required within healthcare to effectively maximize the patient's autonomy as an individual and respect their privacy. It ensures a strong physician-patient relationship, and any disclosure of medical information regarding the patient is normally something that requires the patient's express consent. Now, the patient may waive the right to confidentiality, for instance, because of an insurance uh, examination. The patient asks you to tell or disclose to an insurance company the status of their recent lab results because they're trying to get life insurance, and the insurance company requires that information in order to issue a policy. However, there are exceptions to confidentiality. The big ones are when a patient intends to commit a violent crime. In this case, there's a duty to protect the intended victim. Suicidal patients, in these cases, a physician can disclose to other hospital personnel or other appropriate entities of the patient's intent to commit suicide in order to prevent it. There's a duty to protect here as well. In cases of child and elder abuse, when it's suspected, a physician must report to the relevant authorities. Reportable infectious diseases. Now, the list is slightly different with each state, and remember, the boards have to be black and white, um, but what is universally reportable are cases of HIV-AIDS. Confidentiality has an exception here, but it's not absolute. The information disclosed is related only to the reportable disease in the patient's name to the health department, for instance. In this case, in this instance, this will allow tracing um, the patient's contacts, uh, namely sexual partners or those who may have shared needles or otherwise had the possibility of becoming infected with the HIV retrovirus. All right, let's look at another. A 15-year-old boy presents after having sex for the first time and has dysuria. He is found to have chlamydia. He agrees to let you treat him for gonorrhea and chlamydia, but he is worried you will tell his mother. As the physician, what is the next best step in management? A. Tell him you will keep this confidential between him and you. B. Gonorrhea is not reportable and nobody will be told. C. Don't treat until a guardian is present. D. Tell the mother since he is a minor. Or E. Ask him to switch care to another provider. And the answer is A, tell him you will keep this confidential between him and you. Minors, um, as we've seen, can make issues of consent difficult, as well as issues of confidentiality. And with respect to respecting the autonomy of an adolescent, essentially adolescents are treated as adults in four specific instances, namely for treatment related to sexually transmitted infections, with respect to contraception, with respect to substance abuse, and prenatal care. In these instances, minors may consent to that care if they are able to provide for the consent and be treated as adults in that instance. Therefore, they are likewise afforded the confidentiality that an adult would have normally regarding all aspects of care. Exceptions to confidentiality in minors are related to these four areas. So if a 15-year-old presented with a sore throat and was found to be positive for group A uh, streptococcus, that is to have strep throat, 
treating the patient would require the parent's consent, as well as not be subject to the exceptions to confidentiality. Another from the MedQuest USMLE Step 2 QBank. You are called to obtain surgical consent for an 84-year-old man who is hospitalized after suffering a right femoral neck fracture. The patient has a long history of multi-infarct dementia and major depression and lives with his daughter and her husband. They report to you that he lost his footing while walking and suffered a fall. There was no loss of consciousness and no evidence by history that the fall was sinkable in nature. You read the psychiatric evaluation in his chart and note that the patient, despite some dementia, confusion, and odd mannerisms, is competent to make his own medical decisions and fully understands the nature of his condition. When you enter the room to obtain consent from the patient for surgery, he responds with situation-inappropriate responses, fails to make eye contact with you, and is not oriented to place or time. The most appropriate course of action is A. Forgo the procedure B. Contact the patient's family members for consent C. Contact the legal department D. The patient can still consent to surgery. He has been cleared by psychiatry or E, the patient can sign consent with a note explaining his condition in the chart. And the answer is B, contact the patient's family members for consent. Okay, so this might be a more difficult question that you might encounter. In this instance, what do we have? We have a patient who needs surgery for a right femoral neck fracture. He has been seen by psychiatry who notes that he is competent to make his own medical decisions and fully understands the nature of his condition. That is, he has decision-making capacity. Then, the physician enters the room to obtain the consent from the patient, and the patient proves himself to be confused with situation-inappropriate responses, failure to make eye contact, and is unoriented to place or time. What do we do in this situation? We have to find out who the decision-maker is for this patient. Normally, the decision-maker for an adult is the patient himself. For children, it's the parents, and we've seen some exceptions to that. In a patient who is an adult, a loss of decision-making capacity would make the patient unable to give informed consent. If you remember, decision-making capacity requires that a patient is able to know and understand the information presented, is able to make and communicate his choice with respect to that information, the decision is stable and consistent with the patient's own goals and is not the result of altered mental status. Now, this question is probably more difficult than others because the vignette includes the statement that psychiatry has said that the patient is competent or that is has the capacity to make his own medical decisions and fully understands the nature of his condition. Now, that is only true as a snippet in time. If after they have seen the patient and, and, quote, cleared them, and the patient proves to not meet the criteria for capacity, that is, has an altered mental state, then the psychiatric evaluation holds no weight. Therefore, in order to get consent for the surgery, you have to find who has decision-making capacity for this patient. 
Patients without decision-making capacity have the same rights concerning life-sustaining treatment as patients with decision-making capacity. So any treatment should be consistent with the patient's goals, which can be determined through a written or oral advanced directive. But in the absence of a formal one, an advanced directive is assessed by investigating what the patient's wishes would be based on conversations had with family members or those close to him. If there's no formally designated advanced directive, the next step would be to ask the patient's family members what the patient's wishes would have been. All right, the last two questions I want to discuss are related to the nature of what it means to be a physician. These are sort of like classic instances that sometimes come up in examinations and for which um, you should have some familiarity with. And they essentially relate to the principle of non-maleficence. You are the physician employed by a prison system in which execution is legal. The inmate is guilty and has received due process after a conviction after confessing. You have no personal ethical objection to being involved in the lethal injection. Which of these is ethically correct? A. You can participate to make sure it is painless. B. You can advise the prison but cannot take direct action. C. Since you have no objection, you can participate. D. Refuse to participate. Or E. You can mix the lethal injection medications but cannot administer them. And the answer is D. Refuse to participate. So it is generally accepted that part of the nature of being a doctor excludes participating in lethal injection or the execution of prisoners. Non-maleficence, the principle, do no harm, obtains here. And regardless of one's personal views on this, in their capacity as a doctor, it would be considered unethical to participate. This, in general, is pretty uh, well agreed upon. And again, because the boards have to be black and white in order to make the test fair, here is one instance where all agree that it is a violation of the principle to first do no harm to participate in lethal injection. And one final question. You are a career military officer at a federal detention facility. You are ordered to participate in the enhanced interrogation of a detainee involving waterboarding. What is your response? A. Participation is essential to ensure safety of the procedure. B. Consult legal authorities. C. It is ethical if you do not personally object. D. It is ethical if employed by the military. Or E. You have a duty to decline participation. Similar to the previous case, enhanced interrogation techniques are something which are ethically impermissible for physicians to participate in. Whether or not one is a military officer doesn't matter. The community of medicine agrees that using one's medical knowledge and skills in a way that is harmful would be wrongful. So on the boards, if you're faced with a question about whether you should participate in any um, any interrogation that could be considered torture, you have a duty to decline participation. All right, so that's all we have with our specific questions Thanks again to MedQuest for letting us use material from the USMLE Step 2 QBank. And thanks personally to Dr. Conrad Fisher. You should check out MedQuestReviews.com where you can purchase access to a Step 1, Step 2, or Step 3 QBank from authored by Dr. Conrad Fisher. 
And feel free to check out insidetheboards.com slash episode 006, where you can view the show notes and see additional recommended resources for your boards-related ethics study so that you can study smarter, not harder. Music for this week's episode is brought to you by the band Say Anything. The track is Burn a Miracle off the album Anarchy, My Dear. You should check them out at sayanythingmusic.com. And thanks to Max Penis and Equal Vision Records for letting us use the track for the show. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Exam, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical Licensing Exam, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, or National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during this program is the property of inside the boards for the attributed trademark owner and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the boards fully adheres to their respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentialing bodies.